Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So well, sit listeners, back, relax, I'm back. and enjoy your guide this, to the Thank you. This, if you're just joining us for the first time, you're thinking, Welcome back, Corbin. What in the heck? Why, who is this guy? Why is he back? Well, for those of you who have been following the podcast for a long time, this is your co-host, Corbin. So yeah, I have been away for quite a few weeks. I've been this away. This is your co for oh gosh a number of weeks but yeah it's been for my wedding i got married in between this time and i've been waiting i've been prepping for this i've been very excited to jump back into the podcast it's been in very good hands with alan and a number of uh, rotating special guests have been on the show as well they have done a phenomenal job i've listened to their episodes so if you haven't heard those, go back and listen to those. They also reviewed Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. So if you're looking for something that's also that came out um, this month and that's a newer film, they did review that as well. And I should say, I just wanted to say that I'm back, listeners. But other than that, welcome to our fifth annual Halloween special. Alan, can you believe it's this is the fifth annual one? Yeah, no, that we were you and I were talking about this just a second ago before we hit the record button. And we're both like, well, wait a minute, it's been five years? Huh. <laughs> okay. No, I'm I'm shocked. Yeah. I'm I'm surprised that it has been five years, you know. Um, but yeah, it's been a while. It's been uh, I, I guess we've been doing this for that happy long. Halloween, listeners. I guess it doesn't feel like it's been that long either. Time. So, I hope you're staying safe. I don't know if you're trick-or-treating this year. I Guess we're not supposed to trick or treat because of the virus. It's kind of like we're living in a real horror movie. <laughs> but yeah, it's that being sad. said, I still hope you are enjoying some candy. You're enjoying some of your favorite scary yeah. movies <laughs> and just relaxing. And hopefully you are, if you're listening, you're hearing me right now, then you're relaxing to this podcast as well. So yeah, um, just because this is the last day of October, it is Halloween. That doesn't mean the Halloween spirit has to end. Down in the description below, we have the previous Halloween specials as well, which are some really great films that I'm really happy we've been able to review those. And I'm really looking forward to jumping into our thoughts with Night of the Living Dead. The film is an absolute classic. So when Alan brought it up, I knew that had to be the one uh, we had to jump on. So and if you haven't seen Night of the Living Dead, where have you been? No, I'm just kidding. Definitely. Um. That should be one that you should be watching either today on Halloween yeah. or very <laughs> soon to come because the movie is, uh, it's really interesting to say the least, especially because, um, this movie's kind of old actually, especially for the things that it does. Um, I don't know what year did it come out? It came out on October 1st, 1968. Uh, and yeah, you're right. It came out at a time before the MPAA um, was established. And in fact, they wouldn't be a thing for another month. Now, Corbin and I did talk about this 
uh, the MPAA five years ago, <laughs> um, but we did talk about the MPAA. So this is before they were a thing. Um, so it didn't get a, necessarily a rating per se. Um, and Roger Ebert did oh, nice. write a review or did talk about what his experience was around this time because he got to see it in the theater. And he said that, you know, <laughs> at that time, you could bring anybody to the theater. You had preteens and nine-year-olds coming to the theater and usually it would be there for, you know, being scared just for fun. But he said about halfway through the the feeling inside the theater had changed drastically. Oh, wow. And it wasn't necessarily having fun, getting scared. Everyone was legitimately terrified. Um, so you can listen to what I have to say in the Your Guide if you haven't listened to it yet, because I go into detail on some on a lot of these things, as well as a lot of background info on it. But yeah, when this came out, it did really push the envelope um, from that George A. Romero, George A. Romero was trying to push the envelope here. Um, and it did cause a little bit of controversy when it, when it was released, but that aside, it is an, a movie that, you know, if you didn't know any better, you would think maybe it came out probably like in the, like the eighties or something like that. And yeah, this basically black judging and white by the film content, style was more of an aesthetic choice because of some of the choices really that they do make with this kind of content. Itself. Uh, especially in the 60s, but once again, it's not rated. Now, for reference, I believe Psycho was rated M for Mature. No, not the video game rating. It did have that uh, rating. There was just two ratings pretty much back then. And yeah, we will link in the description below to our discussion on the MPAA and ratings pre-MPAA and all of that stuff. But yeah, keep that in mind that this movie is coming out in 68. The way the movie is shot looks pretty old to me this looks like a 50s uh, movie and they're probably using cameras from the previous decade um but because this movie is black and white but most movies were in color by then um yeah and this movie was later right. uh, colorized yeah, a good, a good did number you of them were, yeah. happen to see any of the color version No, I I didn't. Um, I'm I would like to see it because I, I know that the blood was color, syrup, so I like to see so if they had like also recolored that, that as well. I would say there is the way I watch this movie is okay. um, it's on Prime. The black and white version is on Prime, and the um, it's also on Tubi and Pluto. It's free everywhere. It's also on the archive.org or whatever it's called. So it's in the public domain actually. Oh yes, and yes, it is in the public domain. Oh, and wow. If you have, is, I talk yeah, about that so as well in the year. This movie is very There's easy to get your hands in the, on, in the um, on Prime. They do have the color version. I gotta say, the color version just ruins the movie for me. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the lighting isn't the same. Um, it's just not not wonder, very scary. Yeah. That it ruins the atmosphere. It um, gives the film a completely different tone and feel. That is. Um, they, I feel like they worked really hard to establish that because first of all, the film is shot in black and white when most films were being shot on color and these cameras are pretty old. Um, because even Psycho, which came out in 1960 was on black and white and it, I think Psycho looks a lot cleaner than this movie does. Um, it's just the kind of cameras they were using. And this is, um, Alan, you can speak to this probably with the budget and box office numbers, but this is. For all intents and purposes, a kind of an indie, low-budget film, right? 
I'm scared. Wow. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, yes. that's you want to know what the budget was? That is an incredible, uh, $114,000. Which, you know, yeah. Halloween was shot in what, 1978 for a little over $300,000. So that's super impressive what they're able to do. Um, those are kind of Blumhouse numbers. But nevertheless, shooting a movie for $100,000 is very unheard of. Um, even um, even in 1968, uh, most movies were uh, getting much larger budgets by that point. Right. Now, for adjusted, if we adjust for inflation, um, it's $851,000. Um, so it's still under a million dollars. So it's very much indie. And, um, I talked about this in your guide as well. They had to take a number of steps to, um, you know, save as much money as they could, uh, to ensure that, you know, cause, cause what they had done is they had made kind of like their own production company and they were able to raise this much money, 114,000 to, to help shoot the film. So this is, for all intents and purposes, a micro-budget film that we have here made back in the late 60s. But it did phenomenal in the box office. Um, I don't have opening opening weekend numbers, but domestically, I have it coming back with 12 million. And that's just in the domestic market. Um, foreign markets at 18 million that for a worldwide really total of 30 million dollars uh, on a $114,000 budget. That's incredible. First of all, this is something that, correct me if I'm wrong, but the zombie genre wasn't really a thing, especially back then. This is kind of the one that started the zombie craze. Yeah, pretty much. This is like the thing that, you know, of today's Walking Dead and today's Last of Us, this is kind and of the central also be starting point quick before we of jump that into, zombie craze. Uh, scores uh, you're absolutely right, yeah. Or even with whether the trailer will get us into this movie is I did check and horror really wasn't very big in 68. Um, aside from this movie, the biggest horror movie of the year was Rosemary's Baby. And just think about um, Rosemary's Baby was shot in color and the quality of um, Polanski's film compared to this Romero film. They are both horror movies that are quite scary, but just um, now this is something that I'm sure Andrew could really speak up to very well is the camera work for both films and the color for both films because they're so different. But it's so hard to think that this came out the same year as Rosemary's Baby. It looks like it came out at least 10 years earlier. Yeah, it does. I was surprised to see that Rosemary's Baby had come out uh, that the the same year. Um, they are starkly different films because Rosemary's Baby is definitely more of a psychological thriller with some really dark undertones, and this one's definitely not yeah. that. Uh, in fact, this reminds me oh, a yeah. lot of The Evil Dead, uh, like a lot, a lot. Um, and I think The Evil Dead did come out later than this film did, but despite that, um, you know, it's just got that really indie feel to it. Whereas Roman Polanski with Rosemary's Baby had a much bigger budget. And, you know, you can obviously tell between the two of them. 
So while being very vastly different films, 1968 had a, had a couple of really good horror films that come out of it, especially so, for Alan, the 60s. It's 1968. Um, or I guess in this case, would the late theaters. Oh, wait, what? <laughs> it might. Um, I mean, it might. <laughs> I'm trying to put myself back in the year of 1968. Um... This is a very interesting trailer. I think they say the word, I think they say the phrase Night of the Living Dead probably about five or six times, depending on which trailer you watch. <laughs> but it does look interesting. At the very least, to me, it, it looks rather interesting seeing a film um, from what I'm able to pick up from the trailer that I'm seeing here. Uh, a film about these dead humans coming to life and yeah I it looks interesting agree. To me. it's creepy I'll, I'll and fascinating it looks interesting to me it, it might get me the trailer theater. doesn't look too different from other horror movies at the time the way the trailer is cut it gives me that old 50s monster movie vibe but once you get into the movie you realize you're in a whole different ball game here um, really pushing a lot of boundaries in this movie. And, you know, 68 was a fascinating year because we got 2001 A Space Odyssey, which on the YouTube channel, we have my like half hour interpretation of that film. Yep. Um, we also have Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, and we have Franklin Schaffner's Planet of the Apes. So just to really, mm -hmm. why not? Why not have seemingly undead cannibals uh creeping on you in the night you know so it's a really fascinating year for cinema but yeah if i'm seeing um monkey people talk right. and i'm seeing a star baby in space why not go see uh quote zombies go uh eat each other up <laughs> exactly yeah and, and looking back at it like i mentioned with rosemary's baby uh, the year of 1968 is a very interesting year for cinema just in general. Like we were just talking, like you were just saying, you know, lots of str somewhat strange movies for the time, but ones that end up becoming like classics over the years. Um, like you said, Planet of the Apes, uh, of course, doesn't want a space odyssey, a number of classics. Um, so... Yeah, 1968 for horror, a very inventive and uh, an in... Uh, yeah, a very inventive year for horror, but also for film, a year that came yeah, with and speaking a of test of good time, number how of films has that film would like fair stay the, score the wise test of time. With critics and audiences. Wow. Well, Ooh. very, very well. Um, IMDb has it at a 7.9, meta score of an 89, Rotten Tomatoes at a 97% critic score, 87% audience score. No cinema score, but a letterbox of a 4.0 out of 5. Uh, so very high scores all across Those the board. Those scores which don't is surprise me either, no surprise but they are Given what impressive. kind of legacy this has, it's no surprise to me. So, Alan, what was your first time seeing this movie? It wasn't, wasn't this time, was it? Yes, they absolutely are. No, no, I've seen it one other time. Um, actually, it's kind of a funny story. Uh, I watched it almost three years what? ago. Um, I guess I watched it on Christmas Day of 2017. <laughs> I know this because I texted you right after I, I finished watching it. I texted you saying I just watched the original Light of the Living Dead. Um, and that was also, 
I yeah, I didn't. I knew I had probably texted you that I'd seen it, but I didn't know when it was. I was able to find the text oh between gosh. you and I. Um, I did a search on messages and I found it. But that is uh, weird. yeah, that would probably be the time that I watched it. I don't know why I watched it on Christmas Day, mm. but that was also the same. Yeah, that was also the same day that I got a new mic for the podcast. Um, so. That was a really weird day for me, I yeah, guess. That's from um, my first time seeing this movie. I was doing. It's been many, many years so, ago. I, I want to say I was probably around like it. 15 or 16 is my guess. And I was watching TV in my room one night, uh, likely during October. And this came on Turner Classic Movie Channel. And I remember being utterly fascinated and thinking this is probably the scariest thing I've ever seen particularly for the opening of the film. And I was completely hooked. And I just remembered this movie being shocking because it's a black and white movie. There is some nudity in it and it can get kind of a little gruesome in parts. So I was utterly riveted by it. My first time watching it, I did not get to finish it. I, I fell asleep. It was really late at night. And the second time watching it, I still don't think I was able to finish it. I, I fell asleep again. So this is at least my third time watching it, possibly fourth. And I actually, for the first time, have finally been able to see the very end of this movie. I've, I finally was able to stay awake for the entirety of it. And it's not like it's a long movie. Wow. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you haven't yeah, seen like, uh, like Night of the Living Dead, over which I half. highly recommend you do, then go ahead and click the pause button right now. Go ahead and check the film out. It is easily available for you to watch on many free streaming services. Then come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. Yeah. Barbara and Johnny take a Sunday night drive to visit their father's grave. Right when they go to leave, a strange man approaches them. He grabs at Barbara and Johnny fights him off, but gets killed in the scuffle. Barbara escapes to a nearby house where she meets Ben who has stolen a truck to escape the ghouls and tries to stop the house for gas. From the cellar come five more, Harry Cooper, his wife Helen, their kid Karen, and a younger couple, Tom and Judy. Immediately there is a power struggle between Ben and Harry. Harry insists in the others hiding out in the cellar with them, but Ben knows that the, if the ghouls break in, they would have no place to escape. The stubborn Harry chooses to leave behind a radio and television for control, but not after Helen has something to say about it. On the TV, they hear that the ghoul problem is not subject to their own area, but it is spreading throughout the eastern side of the U.S., the possible cause is space shuttle returning from Venus was found with highly radioactive material on it, but destroying it did nothing, and the scientists believe that it may be causing the recently dead to become alive. The group devised a plan to head to a nearby town, Willard, where a camp is being set up by the National Guard. Tom, Judy, and Ben head out to the truck and drive it over to the pump, fighting off the ghouls as they go. Tom drives the truck away from the pump, but he and Judy are unable to escape before it explodes. Harry locks out Ben, but he's able to break the door down, later shooting Ben in retaliation. With his dying breaths, he reaches out toward his daughter, who has become one of the ghouls. Helen heads down to retrieve her daughter, only to find her gnawing on Harry's arm. Karen then goes after her mother, killing her with a trowel. The ghosts break through the door, grabbing Barb in the process. Ben is forced to the cellar for escape. Meanwhile, a group of men have banded together and found that a blow to the head will stop the ghouls. Later the next day, the group reach the house, and the ghouls have all wandered out into the field. Ben emerges from the cellar, only to be mistaken as one of them in a shot. As the credits roll, we see Ben's body so being dragged out right by off meat the bat, hooks. He's placed in a wood this pile is probably with the other ghouls and is laid on fire. favorite opening end. for any horror movie ever. It's my favorite opening 
because the film begins with really? these two That's unsuspecting people and they're just visiting the grave of their father. And I think what really draws me in is that there is a guy out in the distance. And when I first saw this movie, I didn't presume he was going to just randomly violently attack them. And then, of course, there's the classic, he's coming to get you, Barbara. I love that. I've never forgotten that. And the guy murders Johnny. And to me, it feels like we are immediately thrown into a nightmare, especially the way this uh, one of our main characters is killed. Um, one of the, well, not one of our main characters, one of the characters we're introduced to is killed within the first few minutes of the film, which seems really wild. And, um, the camera angle angles, uh, are handheld and yeah. they're very, uh, low shot. And just with Barbara, like running, um, into the field, trying to get away, the car crashes hiding in this house. Honestly, I don't know if anybody, if any other horror movie really kind of gives me this kind of weird vibe. Maybe the closest thing is Eraserhead, but it's just this otherworldly nightmarish vibe. It's incredible. Yeah, it is kind of strange because, uh, you know, at first they're just the two, the brother and sister, they're just kind of messing around, right? And the brother's like, hey, you said they're coming to get you, bro, bro, you know, just trying to spook her and whatnot until just a second later he's he's dead due to this ghoul right so it is kind of weird to start off you know it's it's unsettling to start off with this way you know where you're already in like a somewhat emotional area that being the cemetery where their father is and something is something is chasing after them right and we kind of find out it was somebody who had died most recently um but you know they had come back to life because of this radiation um, that it end up getting into the soil. So yeah, I I do agree with you. This opening is 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 just unsettling to begin with. Um, I think I have a little bit of uh, a little critique of it here in a little bit when we get into that kind of stuff. But I do agree with you on a number of your points. Um, this is without a shadow of a doubt a very unsettling opening to begin with. You know because the lady is essentially forced and her only. Uh, place for escape is inside of a house that just happens to be nearby who has a dead person in it. Um, and it also kind of so pulls it's on just, that trope. You're right. It's just an unsettling distress. opening to begin with. We know that this young woman seems to be somewhat simplistic, especially mm -hmm. as her character doesn't really progress throughout the story, but she just kind of becomes catatonic. She can't really face reality. She's really not very capable, but we also care for her safety her brother dies right there right before her eyes, which is ironic because they're visiting their dead father. And we also know that she is, if you listen closely right. in the beginning, I believe they had they, they had an eight-hour drive. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so she's eight hours away. And the car is like, destroyed. Oh, it's be late and back, not to mention so, yeah. the actor who plays this um, zombie that's attacking her, he just looks creepy. He's really tall and lanky. And um, he's very mindless. And there's just, uh, there's just mm -hmm. this really helpless feeling about it. And you can see where um, Carpenter took a little bit of inspiration when Barbara jumps in the car and he's trying to attack the car, like when Michael attacks the car as well. Um, the other thing is, I think once we get into the crux of the story where they are, um, trapped right. in this house, Alan, have you seen, um, Hitchcock's The Birds? 
Okay. This gives me a really big feeling of the ver- of the birds because eventually in the birds. birds yet, no. We, you have seen Birdemic though, which is a complete ripoff. <laughs> we have reviewed Birdemic. If you want some awful right. <laughs> kind of horror fun, <laughs> then there you go. That's available our review as well but the birds came out in 63 which um did come out before this but you can see they took some inspiration from yep. that it seems like romero's like instead of birds what if we did like these mindless people so it's really incredible to see kind of where all of this began with the zombies and they're sticking their hands through the house and they're boarding up the doors and they're afraid of fire and stuff uh it's just a lot of fun to watch right Yeah, absolutely. And it also kind of like we were talking about how this opening just in general is just kind of unsettling. Uh, you do kind of get to see what would, how it's going to happen later on is uh, there's this protection that's kind of ripped away from our main from our seemingly main character here with Barb. Right. Her brother is, you know, he at first he fights off this ghoul that's attacking her and then uh he dies he the the ghoul kills him and so barbara is kind of just you know without protection and then it's kind of at the same it's kind of the same at the end of the story too when ben is alone in the house and eventually all the ghouls you know they all walk away from it and then um when he when he goes to hopefully escape then he's he's killed right so there is like this this sense of you know we're only keeping the evil at bay, right? It's almost as if what's going to happen is it feels like it's almost inevitable at, at points of this story because they the ghouls break in, um, well, they almost break in a few times and stepping outside is almost certain danger for our main character. So there's always, you know, one of the ways it builds horror is giving you the sense that, you know, it feels like the the horror that's outside is going to, you know, be not outside in in a very short amount of time. It feels like it's right, almost right up against you, that that evil, that horror um, in the story. I think that's one of the reasons why I found it to be so engaging just kind of throughout, is it always has this sense of unease to it. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's always right. that there sense of isn't you know, what's going to happen in the next scene. Because you know, they are trying to push the zombies from coming in from outside. And there always is that um, kind of pulse-pounding moment where um, our main character, Ben has to go outside and light something on fire to kind of buy a moment of respite for them to at least have a break from that. But the danger is always there and it's always growing. So they really don't have that luxury of a break um, because the zombies keep multiplying outside. Yeah. We also have that interesting um, scene where Barbara runs into the house and she runs up the stairs and she sees the that there's a corpse that seems to have already been eaten pretty much. Which is never really explained, but it leads me to believe that the guy that comes into the cemetery, Mm -hmm. that may have been his house and he ate like his wife or something and uh, came out of the house and uh, shambled into the cemetery. And it's clear the house was pretty close by if Barbara was able to run to it. Um, One last thing about that opening before we move on is most horror movies uh, always open up with one kind of frightening sequence that's usually pretty obvious but the thing that makes this one different is this sequence is really long and it honestly feels like it never ends and that's because 
Barbara goes from the cemetery to the house, and then we just stay in the house. Whereas most horror movies yeah. will jump forward yeah. in time. They'll play around with time, or they'll jump to different characters. And this one just kind of feels like it's never ending. And in a way, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, it does kind of give off uh, for the first mm -hmm. few minutes of this film. It feels like it's being played almost out, almost being played out in real time. Right. Because we get to see, you know, the the skirmish in the cemetery and then Barbara running, Barbara running to the house. And then it wasn't long after Barbara ends up there that we meet Ben. Right. So it does kind of instill this like this sense of uh, of, you know, it's just a never ending nightmare. Right almost in this opening. Now it does kind of begin to cut in and out of time once we get into the story. But with, to begin with, that, those are some of the feelings I'm, I'm feeling here is that this is like a never ending nightmare almost. It just keeps going, you know, and there's one thing after another, after another. So yeah, that I think this is, you know, an effective opening regardless of the fact. Um, but yeah, I I do find it interesting um, the and, way you know, this I like film how opens. I do want to come back to it a little bit later and, um, and talk about it. But um, I like do find it interesting how like it opens. Spaceship type movies are really going out of style by this point um, because, you know, Hitchcock is really doing a lot with thrillers and blending slashers together. And we have Peeping Tom at this point. And it's just a matter of time before we're going to get uh, Halloween and whatnot. But nevertheless, and Black Christmas as well. I do like that there is kind of this homage to the 50s, like sci-fi type of horror, scary movie as well. It's really not the focal point of it, but um, you do get that um, news clip that they believe a spaceship returning from Venus brought with it some kind of disease, which has turned people into these zombies. So on that level, I like that as well, that they're not exploring it too much, but there is a little bit of that mystery of outer space of what possibly um could we do and keep in mind this is um not very long after the space race between the united states and the soviet union so i think they're also um briefly tapping into those possible fears of what's out there of course kubrick's 2001 just came out as well totally different uh, uh space kind of film but nevertheless the space race is very much in people's minds at this point and thinking, well, clearly we've gone beyond the moon at this point. So whatever else is out there could be our undoing is trying to go to the stars and further advance humanity could potentially lead to some unintended disaster, which I, I really like that tapping into that fear as well. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because uh you know, we are always on the outside, right? In this movie, everything that happens, we only like everything that happens, like in the city, um, an exposition for what's happening outside of this area is all told to us um, secondhand. It's all told to us from newsreels and stuff and, and from the TV and stuff. So I, I also find it rather interesting and also smart because, you know, they're already on a micro budget. If we contain it to just the house, uh, then we can kind of give off and tell and talk about what's happening, you know, in the bigger cities or outside of where they're at in more populated areas. Um, so, and that's where we get, you know, that we get to understand that, oh, it's might be a rocket that came back from Venus um, that has some kind of radioactive, radioactive material in it that we believe has started this whole thing. So it does bring in some interesting um, 
some interesting world building because you, like you mentioned, you know, the space race is very much a big thing at this point. And we do get to see how some of those fears of, you know, well, what is out there? You know, what is out in space uh, that we haven't explored yet? You know, what what could be there and what could be something that maybe brings our downfall? It's not necessarily a sci-fi horror, I wouldn't say. Um, but it does bring back those questions. So I, it's, I think it's trying to like, ground some elements of of sci-fi to a point where it, you know, it's not, I wouldn't even consider this even close to a sci-fi film, obviously. But it does have those elements, right? There, there is something there that they're tapping into when it comes to maybe the public's fear and perception of what, you know, what's going to be the end goal of this space race? What's going to happen if we get and, you know, far also, enough into space um, where kind of reminding me uh, of we were able to visit the news broadcast of when um, Orson Welles did the War of the Worlds on the radio. And he he really got me. Uh, he really got people afraid. Now, yeah, I was yeah, looking that up real yes. quick because I didn't remember when um, Orson Welles did that. Uh, so Orson Welles did that in 1938 on October 30th. Perfect timing for that as well. But nevertheless, the means of communication okay. is interesting because these people are isolated, but they are still connected to the outside world. Um, to give them some kind of relief and hope for sanity. And uh, it's also interesting because it's saying like, get to your closest uh, zone, like your safe zone. And they've got that flashing on the screen. And that's kind of the ironic part is they can't. It's like for all of the, you know, them trying to say mm -hmm. like, hey, get to safety. Here's how we can help you. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. really not working out very well. Um, one of the other things that I want to, I want to praise this movie for it. I think a lot of people will probably see this mm -hmm. as maybe the beginning of the end for kind of decency in cinema. Maybe <laughs> I don't know, but um, this movie isn't rated, but there is some nudity gore. It's <laughs> pretty much nonstop intense. Um, there's just kind of this indiscriminate uh, killing of like innocent people, a little girl eats her dad and hacks her mom to death. It's really shocking stuff for 1968, but I think in some ways that's probably a good thing that they were able to. Yeah. I think cinema does have its purpose, especially in the horror genre of really kind of like engrossing and shocking audiences um, with things and getting them to think about other things that cinema was just a little bit too tame at that point. So them pushing the envelope, I find to be pretty fascinating that they were able to do that in the late 60s. Yeah. Right. And like I mentioned uh, a little bit ago, uh, Roger Ebert was there for that opening, the opening night for this movie. And he documented kind of how <laughs> the, the feeling of the cinema was where at first it was just, you know, kind of can't be fun. You know, everyone's kind of ooh spooky, you know, and then about halfway in, everyone was legitimately mm -hmm. terrified because like you mentioned, there are a lot of things in this movie that are like this came out in 1968. Like you said, there's a bit of nudity in here. Uh, yeah. You get to see zombies literally go up and take chunks of a person and then start eating it. And, and a little girl takes a, a prowl and kills her mom with it. So you're right. The, this really does push it, especially for 1968. Um, I were, it's, they're kind of lucky uh, that night of the living dead, you know, was able to come out a month before the MPAA would, would uh, start off 
and initialize their rating system. Um, and that's, I'm sure, a good reason as to why it did amazing in the box office. But you're right. It's If we didn't have Night of the Living Dead, um, I wonder how long it would have taken uh, cinema to, I guess, you know, continue to grow in terms of its horror genre and see how far it can push that envelope, right? Because here, we don't have a rating necessarily, and it's pushed it to a point where, you know, young teenagers are coming in unknowingly to a film that is something that really they should not be watching. <laughs> and because of that, you know, you get to see a lot of the controversy that ended up coming, up, ended up coming out of this movie. But you're right. It is interesting to see a film like really push that envelope before the rating system was even and I would, a thing. Even I would make it was the case that out. this film uh, probably still, shows know, why there was to see that. a necessity for a uniform uh, ratings code for at least theatrically distributed films. Because you, I mean, it's, it's 1968. You don't show nudity in films really. Now, back in the thirties and maybe even the forties, there was, or, and even before that as well, there was nudity and stuff. And that stuff is very like, hush, hush, you can get a hold of it now, but old movies with nudity were a thing, but they really were, um, kind of ran out of Hollywood. Uh, you couldn't even say, the D word in, um, you, they got it in Gone with the Wind, um, in the late thirties, but I'm just saying the movies yep. were a very, you know, decent place for cinema. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas this, you know, Hey, you're a young kid. You want to go see this kind of spooky movie? Yeah. It looks tame enough. Well, you, you're going to be seeing some pretty intense stuff. So I think this movie honestly probably makes the case for at least rating movies to give audiences an idea of what they're walking into. Now, it also gave the inspiration for young filmmakers, like as you mentioned earlier, Sam Raimi uh, with The Evil mm -hmm. Dead. They gave his film an NC-17, and instead of accepting the NC-17, I think he just decided to release the film as not rated. And um, because the back of my Blu-ray copy does not say NC-17, it says not rated. So that kind of, yeah. um, this movie may have sparked that whole um, kind of unrated thought process right. as well of we can just put whatever we want in here and skirt around the rating system. There really wasn't much of one back then, but nevertheless, they just put this out in the theater. <laughs> it was... <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, back then it was just the Hayes Code, right? That was like the thing that you were supposed to follow. But when you have a film like this where it says, yeah, but, you know, what if we don't follow that and do our own thing? You could, you get to see some of the outcome of that. And, yeah, it very. I don't know how, you know, it's, I think it's up for, you know, research. But how much did this contribute to you know, the more, a more, a lot more films going on a, going down the route of just not even rating it, you know, after the MPA come out, came out. Um, what is, how many of those films would have gone down that, gone, have gone down, down that route because of what happened with Night of the Living Dead? You know, it's an interesting, interesting thought to see, you know, a film that, you know, kind of just says, almost says, you know, you know, just let's just forget about that and do our own thing. How many other films like, you know, Evil Dead or what have you have also gone down that same route. Nowadays, yeah. it's going to be a little bit more harder because if your film isn't rated, uh, good luck getting it in a theater. <laughs> um, most theaters just 
straight up will not accept it if it hasn't mm-hmm. gotten some kind of MPAA rating or yeah, if it is and I was trying to do some research and think of, like of, of movie but especially because when the little girl thought. becomes a zombie and eats her dad and kills her mom like oh gosh that's pretty terrifying there was a Warner Brothers film in 1956 called The Bad Seed which I've always heard of yeah. but I haven't seen yet I'd have to imagine it's a little bit more tame mm-hmm. than this but the idea of a, a little innocent girl being a murderer is it not um foreign to audiences at the very least but you could see the idea of evil basically sparing no one or this kind of uh, dehumanization kind of touching everywhere and you kind of have to be on guard from everything just heightening up the fear there is nothing that's going to be safe. There are no rules really anymore. It's just kind of the terror. That's kind of the appeal of this movie now and at the time as well, I would say. Right. Um, I got to say, I was also pretty shocked um, that this movie right. yeah, exactly. does switch exactly. character perspectives because the movie opens with Barbara and her brother dies. And then Barbara, we're really not going to stick with her. She becomes yeah. catatonic and Ben really becomes the lead character throughout the rest of the movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that's part of where my criticism of the opening comes from. But again, I'll save that for a little bit later because I do want to talk about Ben because Ben, I think, is a very, very interesting character to me. Uh, he's he's definitely the most, most probably he's definitely the most strong-willed of the group here. Um, and this is where once Barb reaches the house, this is kind of where, you know, you get to understand, you get to see, you know, how characters, how important characters are to this film. Because once they reach the house, it becomes more of, you know, these characters, you know, in the situation, and they're the ones who are, like, making the story from there and on. Because there isn't really much that they do outside of, you know, watch the news and stuff. It's really becoming, like, their, like, their, uh, their conversations and their differences that really start moving this plot along and keep and this kind of keeps it within you know within the house and stuff. So it's interesting that this becomes somewhat of a of a character driven story once Barb reaches the house um, from here pretty much until till the end. And we do have some really interesting characters at that. But I, I found this to be an interesting like you meant like you said interesting that we swap character we swap main characters from Barb to pretty much Ben from here on to the rest of the story, to the end of the story. And he was, and Ben is kind of funny too, because Ben, uh, the character guy who played him, he, his character was originally going to be um, dumb and unintelligent. And the guy that got to act for him said, I'm not acting like that. And they had to change his character to be more what the actor was like. Um, And so that also, you know, is something that is something you really don't see in 1968, you know, a main lead being somebody who isn't necessarily predominantly white. It's not, you don't see that a whole very often back in this time. Yeah. I was trying to consider that as well, that this film is like hot off the heels of the civil rights movement and the civil rights Mm -hmm. act was passed just four years before and, um, interracial marriage just ended the year before this movie came out actually. So you're right, Ben originally was supposed to be a truck driver. And it was interesting because Ben being black wasn't a big deal to the creators of the film. They weren't doing it to make a statement. He was just the best actor who auditioned for the role. And um, 
I was on Criterion.com. They had a special feature about it. And uh, Frank Darabont, who uh, would go on to uh, produce The Walking Dead, he also did a little film you may have heard of called The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, right. <laughs> he claimed <laughs> One of the that, most popular um, films on IMDb. <laughs> yeah, j- yeah, yeah, one of them. <laughs> but um, Darabont claimed that if this was an A-list movie, then Dwayne Jones, who played Ben, could have been Oscar nominated for his performance. So I just find it really fascinating, uh, especially that we have a black actor, the lead in a 60s movie, and he also gets to beat up a white man. So there's this whole movie yeah. is just controversial all over the place. Oh, yeah. It, it's and it's funny, too, because, you know, when we do have a, you know, a middle aged white male, he's portrayed to be somebody who's, you know, not necessarily not necessarily the. Uh, I would say the protagonist, not necessarily good. <laughs> He's something that is really conniving and is really wanting to seek control, even though he himself is probably more scared than anybody else who's in that room or in that or in that house. And so it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of playing with the audience back in that time, it looks like, with, like you mentioned, an actor who's black, who's our main lead, and the portrayal of a middle-aged white man isn't something that uh, I would say is um, acceptable, maybe. Uh, it's something that is, you know, it's it's it, it playing to the weaknesses of, you know, of this character or of this person's skin, right? So it's, yeah, it's just pushing that controversy envelope even more for audiences back in 1968, seeing something like this. These two, these two characters in general, um, I think really encapsulate a, a good chunk of the, of the of the controversy that came out of this, and I really do like to watch the conflicts play out on both sides. That the enemy outside may, in fact, not be as bad as the enemy within, and we see that um, there's these people that have been hiding in the basement, and they know other people are up there; they can hear them talking. But it's kind of this um, kind of Darwinian survival of the fittest, almost, especially with the crotchety uh, bald guy who is no help whatsoever, and he is not even going to let Ben back into the house. And so we kind of almost get involved here with this um, kind of like a isolated um, island. Um, Gosh, I'm trying to think of the book, Um, Lord of the Flies. We kind of get this Lord of the Flies or almost this, in a way, like kind of Garden of Eden scenario. And it's like, what if you know, you do are, you are kind of safe in this place and there's all this evil outside. Wouldn't you like work together to do the right thing? And it comes to find out that no original sin is still going to exist no matter where you're at pretty much. And that, uh, humanity is going to, um, not always treat itself very nicely and band together, even under the darkest of circumstances. And that's why, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if we want to talk about the end too much just yet. I don't know how you feel about that. But I will say the end kind of really makes me realize that this movie is ultimately kind of about the human condition. That just like the zombies, the sane humans may not be sane after all since they've begun treating the hunt as a sport. These people have only turned to be zombies not that far and they've already, it's already very easy in their mind to hunt them like animals, basically. 
And um, when they shoot Ben, they don't call out. Ben's holding up a gun, which so far I've never seen a zombie do that. And he is dark, but it's basically indiscriminate killing. Shoot first, ask questions later. Especially when he says, hit him right between the eyes. That's a good shot. That end is really powerful, actually. Yeah, it's a really it's a really strange ending, too, because it does kind of leave you with like just chills running down your neck, right? Mm-hmm. Because they don't ever know that Ben wasn't a zombie, right? Or I guess in this movie, they're considered ghouls. But to them, like you said, he's just, at this point, he's just sport, right? He, they never get a good look at him. They just see him crawling around in the house. And that's when they decide to shoot him because they assume because that he's uh, one of the ghouls. So it's kind of, you know, eerie to see, you know, there's like the, you hear the news happening um, with a series of pictures where you get to see Ben being pulled out by meat hooks um, and then put into a pile with other ghouls and then on fire, you see all this through a series of photographs. So it's just this eerie feeling that you get you're at the ending. And you're right. It does kind of feel like it is just at that point, just for sport, right? The men who are walking around while well, they may have figured out, you know, um, a good way of taking care of, of the zombies. Um, when you really get down to it, you know, how easy is it to tell which who is and who is not a zombie from a distance, right? Um, it's also interesting, too, because uh, tor- before Ben goes down to the to the cellar, um, Harry, who is the middle-aged white man I've been talking about, um, he's saying, you know, the cellar is the safest place to be. And Ben's stance is, no, it's not because there's no escape. Um, if I, if we were to get trapped, we would certainly die down there. Whereas upstairs we have more escape routes. Well, once everyone else is dead, Ben is forced into the cellar. And once he decides, once he is able to come out, that's when he dies. Right. So it also kind of plays with like, I guess, you know, how right Ben maybe maybe was in that instance when he was talking with Harry and how much that ends up hurting him or other people uh, when it gets to the end of the film. It's, I don't know, it's, the ending is just, to me, it's eerie, um, just all the way around. All right, so there are some disappointing aspects about this movie, and I would even say some bad points on this movie. I know I've been praising it here thus forth but you know let's talk about some of those disappointing elements because they're here as well this movie isn't perfect by a long shot i would say Mm -hmm. alan you've been hinting at it throughout the podcast i really want to know what about this beginning that you don't like so i guess this opening um i guess it just confuses me right because while yes it does kind of set us up for you know the element of you know how much protection is there actually that we are set up with the character of Barb. Um, Once Barb enters the house, she goes pretty much mute for the entire duration of the movie with only points here and there where she does come back. So I don't know, it just, it's, to me, I don't find this opening to be super compelling. Um, I find it to be uneasy and kind of spine chilling, but at the same time, it's not one that I find to be very, very strong because once the character of Barb enters the house um she goes nowhere um her character it she basically stops there right she's catatonic for the rest of the film so when i rewatch it again i don't find this opening to be as the hook for this opening to be very engaging because i know that this character is just going to go into the house and then she's not going to do much until the very end of the story when her brother is the one who ends up killing her 
um, which I also find to be something that's, you know, it isn't really, it's only, it's only thing that is there for a character to begin with, right? So I guess in a roundabout kind of way, I don't find this opening to be very engaging in my own, I guess from what I'm seeing. It's not as engaging um, as I, you know, I, as I guess I would have liked it to be. You know, for a movie that's got, you know, all these high ratings and stuff like that, I didn't find the opening to be very engaging. So you're saying there's kind of a disconnect between the opening and the rest of the film? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a disconnect between those two those two elements. Do you think the opening would work better as a standalone short film, maybe? Uh, maybe. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> I feel that you're right. The opening is contained... It's very, I feel like it's very self-contained, but then I do actually like that the introduction of Ben creates a problem in her mind of whether, do I take my chances with this black guy? Because you could tell she's kind of afraid of this black guy, but then she also wonders, should I take my chances of that guy out there? Cause he's kind of slow and I've been able to outrun him thus far. Mm-hmm. So there is kind of that uneasy tension, that interracial tension that is brought up, which I find to be really um, interesting and gripping as well. Ultimately, she does become worthless and she kind of has her little, you know, redemption there at the end and tries to help and ends up dying in the process. Um, I guess I don't find that much of a problem for me per se, because I really like Ben as a character and I don't think it would have been very fascinating to follow Barb <laughs> throughout this entire movie. I don't really want this to be Barbara's journey per se, but I will say where my problem comes in is with the second act. It hits about 40 minutes in and, um, you know, you realize that there are people hiding in the cellar, which is interesting in a twist. Unfortunately, they do very little to make the plot more intriguing. I mean, I like that Harry Cooper is a thorn in Ben's side, but I care nothing for Tom and Judy. Yeah, no, I I agree. Tom and Judy, they (laughs) seem to be, they try to be like a voice of reason between Ben and and Harry, but that's not really played out a whole lot. Um, It's, you know, it's like maybe a few lines of dialogue and that's really about as far as it goes. Um, And later, you know, uh, Ben and Judy, not Ben and Judy, Judy and whatever his name is, they Tom. both, Tom, that's it. Tom and Judy end up dying not too long after that. So you're right. Uh, I, f- I don't find Tom and Judy to be very compelling characters at all. <laughs> um, they seem to really only be there to try and be like the middle man between these two sides of the argument. But in reality, they're already kind of siding with Ben anyways, but uh, they are, you know, they're trying to talk some sense into Harry. And then when they're gone, um, then Harry tries to take over, right? So that's about as much as they go for, unfortunately, in the story. It doesn't feel like there's really much to them at all. There's no backstory that we get or anything. They just seem like they're you know, they're newlyweds that just happen to be in this, this situation with Harry um, and his wife, Helen. So, Well, let's be honest. They are, in my opinion, the easily the worst actors in this. Their acting is just truly awful. Yeah, and Judy maybe gets like a couple lines. In total, um, Tom is terrible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I can write off some of this as just being like just can't be fun. Mm, but uh, you're right. Not all of the acting is very very is very good. You know, I do think um, Dwayne Jones, who plays Ben, he is easily probably the best 
actor in the movie. Oh, yeah, hands down. The best actor, and I would say the most charismatic as well. I I really yeah. enjoy the character of Ben. Like he is by far my fa- most favorite character, and I think he's also the part that part of that is due to the fact that he's also the most developed out of all these characters as well. Yeah, and you know, as I mentioned earlier, it was rare for a black actor to be the lead in a movie. Mm-hmm. It wasn't unheard of because Sidney Poitier became the first African American to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actor in 1959 for the film The Defiant. And then he became the first to win in 1964 for Lilies of the Field. But nevertheless, this was pretty rare. So um, Sidney Portier was really the um, the mainstream one. But I gotta say, Dwayne Jones gives a great performance. It does. But whenever um, Tom and Judy are on the screen, I don't give a care. And I feel like they're really bringing the film down. And there's that uh, scene where it's just the two of them like, you know, we might die if we go out there, but don't, why does it have to be you? I feel like we've just entered bad daytime television, honestly. <laughs> and talk about foreshadowing too, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, that's a very disappointing element for a movie that I feel like has done a good job, like not really relying too much on dialogue and mostly just on the atmosphere and just visual storytelling. All of a sudden we have this truly awful daytime television style writing and acting oh i just felt like we just it's very tv-esque if you ever watch ever watch tv from the 50s or 60s this tom's acting feels like they just pulled him off of the local tv set for i don't even know what and it's not great yeah yeah i think one of my other uh disappointing elements too is they rely uh, heavily rely on like newscasts like news from the radio or news from the tv you know so we it's a lot well, yeah. we get to a point where we understand everything that's happening outside <laughs> uh, of the house and i kind of really liked that ambiguity right like sometimes like we have the radio on sometimes you know where we get enough to know that they're that this isn't just subject to this house but it's happening you know all across the eastern seaboard or whatever um, but then it just keeps going until we get to a point where they're explaining, yeah, a rocket came from Venus that had radioactive material. It got into the soil and now people are coming alive. I think that's where like my, I think that's where I'm like, okay, hold on a minute now. How did you find that out? <laughs> that, that, and I feel like they're just, and I'm not necessarily going to critique the movie for this, but I feel like they're over explaining, uh, what's happening, right? If maybe if they had made the newscasts, like if they'd use them less and made what's happening outside more ambiguous, would that have you know made it scarier? I'm I'm just curious. I understand why they did it because like we talked about earlier because of the whole space race thing. But I'm wondering if they had done less with the radio and the news, would this have been scarier? Knowing you know is this how bad is it outside of this one location? Oh, I completely agree with that. The amount of time they have, they they just have so much time to actually watch the TV and listen to the radio. First of all, I kind of find it a little hard to believe that in 1968, these people out in the middle of nowhere even have this TV set. Because keep in mind, I mean, TV wasn't like super prevalent in the 60s back then. I mean... Now, you're getting closer to the 70s, more people are having one, but these people out there have TV and radio, and they've got all this stuff. Eh, you're right. It's a little too easy that we do get these explanations, and I really wish they wouldn't have. I don't know if they ran out of ideas, or they just wanted to world build, or not make it 
necessarily too scary for audiences and kind of create that link to the outside world. Um, it is disappointing. I don't like it. Um, and that's honestly one of the things that um, I think they did really smartly in the film 10 Cloverfield Lane mm-hmm. is you don't have that link to the outside world. And you're constantly right. wondering, is there, has there been, is there a terrorist attack? Is it an alien invasion or is it all just a lie? Right. That ambiguity right. really makes it scary, like you're saying. Right. It's that fear of the unknown, right? We don't know what's going on in 10 Cloverfield Lane. We're told from a very uh, suspicious source <laughs> what's happening. Um, but that's what, yeah, that's what b- helps build that tension and that fear is, you know, not knowing what's going, out, going on outside. Our brain tries to fill in what's going on outside. And sometimes that can be even scared, scarier than what the screenwriter maybe would have intended. Um, or maybe if the screenwriter had written something on the page, you know, having our imagination take over could be the scariest thing of all, right? So that's kind of one of the things I, I think towards, as this movie goes along, I think Roy begins to drain how um, how scared or how scared I could have been is that this movie likes to, you know, it over, I feel like it over explains a lot of elements, right? And I now I do have to attribute that to partially being, you know, it's not, um, it's a movie from the times, right? It's a movie from 1968, not a movie from twenty the year 2020, right? So given what was going on around that time, I can understand why some of these choices were made, why the news is so prevalent um, in this story to help give information and whatnot. But it is something that I do find with, you know, somebody who's had more experience watching films and has grown up in a year that is way after 1968, they are things that um, that I do find for my own personal um, way of watching movies or my own personal opinion, they're not as engaging. And, you know, I, I will say, unfortunately, the movie, I feel like doesn't redeem itself very much with this third act. I feel like by this point, my interest has mostly waned because we kind of have this dumb Tom and Judy uh, escapade where we try to get the truck and they the truck blows up and they don't get out of the truck I, I don't know it just I felt like some of that was kind of manufactured drama and excitement and I don't really care yeah. about um, Harry Cooper letting uh, Ben back in I felt like that was kind of exciting as well but I, I gotta say maybe I'm just used to zombie entertainment now but I don't find the third act of the film to really live up to the first act you know how much I love the first act of this movie and at least the very opening I really don't care for this third act, except when Ben gets killed. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, this is kind of incredible. And as you said, it's extremely creepy with these just kind of still photographs, which um, those kind of still photographs, we kind of get that in uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I believe. So um, there's just so much uh, also from this movie that you can see um, horror directors have picked up. Uh, later on but i don't know how do you feel about the third act i just feel like this movie steadily goes downhill for me honestly honestly uh, the second okay so i guess my feelings of the of the third act are um they're they change because of what happens in the second act because in the second act i'm kind of with you there are moments from just like okay you know can we move on i think part of that is it tries to be you know uh it tries to be like a character driven story i feel in its second act um, but with characters, a couple of characters, mo- namely, that aren't very strong, right? That being Tom and Judy. I don't think they're necessarily very strong characters. Whereas Harry and Ben, you know, at least they have those two different 
outlooks on on there there are two different two very different characters with different ways of going about you know how to survive right and so they butt heads a lot that that does create a lot of interesting conflict um whereas with tom and judy not necessarily so when we get into this third act after tom and judy have you know they both died and the zombies are invading this house i'm getting back into it because it's like okay you know now we have the brother uh barb's brother coming back to us um we have the the little girl downstairs has now died and is now a ghoul and has killed her father and then later her mother which is a scene that genuinely creeped me out when i first watched it so i'm getting yeah. back into it in the third act i'm thinking okay yeah i'm i can i can get in with this because i feel this is where you know a lot of the scares are coming back now whereas before it was them it was mostly just you know character drama for a good a good chunk of the film and now we get to see the zombies come back so i guess in, in my opinion i i liked i think the third act the most out of any other part of this movie oh, wow. because of how you know how far all the characters end up dying and some of that was within you know within the the house as well so i found it to be in, very engaging at least for me i guess my frustration comes into the point that this is romero's first feature film he's never made a full-length movie before in my opinion, I find the pacing of this movie, or at least the structure of the film, to be lumpy at best. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can agree with that a little bit. It is not necessarily uh, the str- the pacing is not very uh, smooth. I will gr- I'll agree with that. It's just because I feel like we have a pretty long first act, and I feel like the second act comes in, like I said, forty minutes in when we find out there's more people down downstairs, which. It's just kind of unexpected and strange. And then that whole second act, I find to be, like you said, most of it's news broadcasts or most of it is just really kind of wishy-washy acting and character motivations. And then, yeah, you're right. The third act does become exciting and it has an incredible conclusion. But I feel like because we had such this unnecessarily long second act, that the third act is uh, very stunted and they're not really quite sure how to kind of finish everybody off or fill everything out in a satisfying way. To me, it comes very quickly. The third act is pretty short in my opinion. So I feel like the act structure is just pretty messy. I, I wish it was a little more cleaned up. Yeah, and I guess I could also say that at least when it comes to that final, like the, the climax of the film, it's with characters I like at least care for a little bit. Um, sure, sure. So, I mean, we at least have a little bit set up with Barb and a little bit set up with Harry or Helen. Um, so when all, when the ghouls finally attack the house and you see all these characters literally fighting for their lives and also kind of, you know, being ambushed by the, the daughter downstairs, you know, it does create this sense, at least for me, it created this sense of, you know, this genuinely I'm creeped out now because of, you know, what all is happening. Cause I, I do have some kind of a connection with these characters albeit a very small one. Um, there was a really important scene or a, a scene that I highly enjoyed at the very beginning when Ben and Barb are having a conversation and they're telling their story as to how they heard or how they saw the outbreak happen. And Ben's story I found to be very interesting because he talks about how he was at a diner and he saw a bunch of these things uh, yeah. against the gas truck and stuff. And he tells a story and you know, you're, you, I was at least imagining what was happening while he's telling the story, right? I found that to be very engaging as definitely one of my favorite scenes of the whole movie, just because it's these two characters who are, you know, they're 
shell-shocked almost. They're, they're freaked out, but one, they're taking it in two very different ways. And I was wanting, I was wondering if that was going to happen for us, the film, and kind of to a different degree. So I liked that when we get to the ending here, we do have characters that I have some kind of a connection to fighting for their lives. I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily say that any of these characters are particularly very strong outside of Ben, um, but at least I have some connection to him. So I guess that's why I found the third act to be as engaging as I thought. Ben's monologue is such a strong scene, and that's what mm-hmm. Darabont calls his Oscar winning scene where he does, he's yeah, able absolutely. to give such emotion um, to that performance. Yeah. As he is just recounting this like really harrowing narrative. And I love that they don't flash back to it. We just get to listen to him describe it. That's a great scene. Ellen, I gotta say, I'm quite curious on this one. What is your rating and recommendation for night of the living dead? So I, Judging from um, giving this movie credence that it, you know, it is a movie that came out in the 60s or the late 60s and pushed a lot of buttons when it came out. Um, this is a, for all intents and purposes, a very impressive first feature. Uh, this is something that has by far been one of the driving forces to a continually growing zombie craze. Even into today, we have the long-running show, The Walking Dead, who has gone on for who knows how many seasons at this point. And of course, The Last of Us, which is a very famous uh, video game duology at this point that Corbin and I did review the second one not so long ago. So it's something that has definitely stood the test of time, but it's also something that, you know, I still have to, I still want to, you know, talk about my experiences with the film uh, after you know, it's come out years after it's come out. But there are, and so to me, there are still some very important and very impressive sequences in here. Some of them that I wasn't expecting to actually genuinely creep me out, like the scene when the daughter is killing her mom, or some of the aspects of the 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 ghouls eating the meat off of the dead people. Um, that those few sequences are genuinely just chilly. Like, chilly. They're genuinely chilling, right? So... One of the things that brings it down, unfortunately, is that there are just massive dumps of exposition all from the news, all from uh, the television and things like that. And we have a couple of characters here where after a certain point, it becomes you know a very character-centric story that aren't very well developed and they're rather weak, unfortunately. So while I would have enjoyed to see you know stronger characters in this, in the story to take over and become the driving force for the story to go on, like I was thinking it was going to do, uh, seeing that it doesn't go that way, it it instills in me, you know, I guess, you know, wondering what exactly are what what exactly was I expecting out of a movie that, like this? There are genuinely great and masterpiece levels of their masterpiece levels level moments in the story. But there are also a number of shortcomings, which just comes with, you know, making a first feature. So when it's all said and done, I do still very much enjoy Night of the Living Dead. It's a very spooky movie, surprisingly from the 60s, that I that I do very much enjoy. So I think at the end of the day, I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10, but still a very high recommend for me. Night of the Living Dead was not only a genre-defining moment in cinema history, but it has stood the test of time as one of the most terrifying horror films. A ragtag group of strangers are stuck in a farmhouse during a tumultuous time in history. 
Can they put their differences aside to survive the night? The answer is a bleak no. But the message isn't bleak. The narrative serves as a cautionary tale on the human condition. The age-old story of Cain and Abel, the Darwinian thought of survival of the fittest, not only are these themes surprising for a science fiction horror movie to present in 1968, but not many horror movies since have tried to present these questions. Aside from the themes, the film is straight up scary, featuring, in my opinion, the greatest opening ever for any horror film, just like a dream. It may start out normal, but the nightmare gets real weird real fast. And like the innocent Barbara, we can remain catatonic and rail against the nightmare, or like Ben, we can fight till the end, or like Mr. Cooper, we can deny the reality, or like Tom, we can tragically die the hero. Wrapped in the context of horror, this little indie film on the human condition deservedly remains one of the standard bearers for the genre of horror. Not only did it basically invent the zombie genre that is still capturing movie and TV watchers' attentions today, it still captures my attention with its eerily nightmarish feel. Night of the Living Dead, despite its flaws, receives 8 stars out of 10 with a strong recommend. So yeah, I guess you're, you know, our ratings are rather close to one another. Uh, we understand that you know this movie is by far very, very, very important and, of course, very inspirational for a lot of other things that came after it. But, you know, for a movie that is how many years old at this point? 52. Um, 50, 52 years. There is age on it. There is age on it. There is. And, you know, I was considering giving this film a seven. I was really toying with, with giving it that. But I thought, you know what? This film does so much so right, especially for 68. It's very much ahead of its time. I really want to give it that credit. And there still is right. some really incredible aspects to it. So that's why I ultimately landed on an eight out of 10, but yeah, it, it's closer to the seven. Um, you know, I wanted to check and see, um, if this was ever on the IMDb top 250 with a 7.9 and it has never been on the IMDb top 250. That's surprising because given a 97% of run <laughs> tomatoes, I would have expected it to be on the list at least at some point. Well, Alan, is this a pickup or pass for you? Well, I already own it, so it's a pickup. Uh, well, there you go. Uh, what edition of the film do you own? Uh, I have the Mill Creek edition, but I do really want that uh, Criterion Collection edition. I heard that one, as usual, is probably the best edition to get. <laughs> so at some point, I'll, I'll definitely get my hands on it. Nice. Do you, um, when did you when did you buy it? Oh, do you remember? It wouldn't have been long after I watched it. All right. So, so you watched it and then you're like, I got to pick this one up. Yeah. For what I know, I watched it and then probably picked it up at uh, Best Buy or uh, Vintage Stock for all I know. Mm, sure. Technically, I have this movie. It's on my Plex. I got it. I pulled it from the public domain. <laughs> um, the transfer, or if you could even call it that, is absolutely awful. So it's it's a very ugly um, version of the film. Um, I'll definitely pick this one up on the Criterion. Well, so after watching Night of the Living Dead, what other film and TV recommendations do you have for our listeners? Well, if you really like that indie style, um, The Evil Dead is definitely a, a great choice to go with if you if you like what you see here. Because this one and the, and the Evil Dead have very similar uh, feels to it because they are both heavily independent films. 
heavy on independent or they're yeah they're heavy independent films with very very small budgets made back in the 60s and 70s so i would say if if you like this one you you might enjoy the evil dead alternatively if you want something that, that looks a bit more expensive <laughs> you can look at rosemary's baby roman polanski's rosemary's baby a fantastic horror film so my recommendations are the crazies the remake not george romero's follow-up film which i haven't seen yet but i want to uh the crazies i really like the remake quite a bit i own it on blu-ray i also am going to recommend the walking dead tv show especially those uh, beginning seasons are really uh, captivating and i feel like you get a lot of vibes from between the walking dead and night of the living dead um the other one i'm going to recommend is the 1956 invasion of the body snatchers oh interesting i think that's another movie it's, it's another kind of social commentary type movie yeah. Um, and it is so well made and it does give you this similar feeling of everyone's not as they seem and nowhere is really safe. So I, I love that movie. It's fantastic. Yeah. That's a great choice. So after this movie came out, there wasn't necessarily a sequel per se, despite its popularity. Um, now if this movie would have came out today, uh, we would be getting the sequel the following year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. And it's Absolutely. on TV show and book and all kinds of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, this was uh, when this was written, it was like meant to be one of three. Um, mm -hmm. Now, of course, later on, uh, more movies came out. Um, later in 1978, we had Dawn of the Dead. And then a few years after that, Day of the Dead in 1985. So those are that's considered like the three part story to this, uh, I guess, saga from George A. Romero um, is these, these these three movies. I've definitely heard of those two movies, but I've never um, I've never seen either of them. Have you? Nope, I haven't either. This is the only one that I've seen from those three. I know the- so I'm curious to see what they'd be like. I am curious as well. I know they were not as well received at all, but nevertheless, mm -hmm. I definitely want to see them. Um, I know, uh, Romero came back to the genre five years later with the crazies, as I just mentioned. And then, as you said, Dawn and Day of the Dead. I believe Day of the Dead was remade by Zack Snyder also, if I'm not mistaken. Ah, uh, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. I know they, <laughs> I, well, I, there are numerous movies with Of the Dead subtitled to it, so. Yeah, there is. Um, as far as the dead movies go, Romero would go on to direct Land of the Dead, Diary of the Dead, and finally, Survival of the Dead, which I hear are all awful. And I'm probably not going to watch them. So. But I would be curious yeah. to watch uh, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead eventually. Uh, I really want to eventually get around to those. But yeah, you mm -hmm. it, it's a loose trilogy, right? They're not uh, strongly connected from what I understand. I mean, judging by the, how this movie ends, I wouldn't think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, not to mention Dawn of the Dead comes out 10 years later, and then it takes another seven years to get Dawn of, Day of the Dead. So it's kind of weird how long it took between movies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listeners, the question after the show is, what is your favorite zombie movie or TV show? The choices are endless, so I'm pretty excited to hear what uh, everybody likes as far as uh, zombie entertainment goes. Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners. Once again, I hope you are having a very happy Halloween. Thank you for spending some of your time with us. 
going along with us as we gave you our thoughts on Night of the Living Dead. And we're definitely curious to know what you think of this movie as well. Maybe you love it. Maybe you hate it. Um, it's definitely considered a classic by most. But as you can see, we still had our problems with it as well. So definitely a great Halloween movie to review. I'm so happy we got to review this one. And I'm glad to be back. It's uh, great to be back. I definitely missed being here on the podcast, but I'm happy that I left it in good hands. Now, I should mention that I'm not going to be back in a couple days on Monday. Uh, Alan and uh, the rest of the guests will be finishing up the um, Narnia trilogy of reviews with uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. That's coming out this uh, Monday, but I will be back um, the next Monday after that, November 9th. Um, we will be kicking off our Rocky retrospective movie review series. We will be reviewing all six Rocky films, and we will be reviewing the two Creed films. And then, of course, we will be coming to you at the very end of the year with another Christmas special. But those Rocky films will last us till the end of the year. Some of you eagle-eyed, or should I say eagle-eared listeners, will be saying, wait a minute, aren't you supposed to be reviewing Candyman, the Candyman movies? <laughs> yeah, we're supposed to. Yep. Uh, surprise. Can you guess uh, why we're not? Yeah. Uh, COVID pushed yes. back Candyman to 2021. So, Like with everything else. Yep. With everything else, um, Candyman got pushed back. And so we knew we were talking about doing the Rocky films early 2021. I know I'm like kind of the veteran, but kind of the newbie when it comes to these series. Alan, have you seen any Rocky films? I haven't seen any Rocky films. Um, not even, not the Creed movies, not even the first one. I've seen nothing. I'll, I know the legacy it has, but I have yet to actually watch them. So Alan will be the definite newbie coming into that, which will be interesting. So if you haven't seen Rocky, I definitely recommend it. I mean, it won Best Picture of the Year. So for that alone, you probably should see Rocky if, if you want to say you've seen the Best Picture of the Year for the, the year it came out. So yeah, and it was uh, definitely a big moment for Sylvester Stallone as well. So I'm really looking forward to those. And honestly, those are kind of really good November movies and kind of fall transitioning into the year films. So very excited to review those. Mm -hmm. Well, listeners, we will see you on Monday with Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And we will see you the following Monday with Rocky. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. 
And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. This is the fourth. This is our fourth Halloween special. Yeah, because the first one we did was Halloween. Oh, oh yeah, I, was, I guess that's right. Yeah, <laughs> Halloween. Uh, Halloween. Psycho. It's been too many years. Poltergeist, right? Yeah, we did Poltergeist. Um, is there one more? There's three. No, okay, this is actually our fifth our fifth annual Halloween special. What? <laughs> I just looked it up. Black Christmas was our fourth annual Halloween special. Yeah, because that was the one we did last year. I remember I remember that one we did last year. But it, right. you had me second guessing if it was on Halloween or if we did like special because I knew it wasn't our Christmas special because that was the same year we did uh National Lampoons. That's it. Oh yeah. So last year was Black Christmas. The year before that was Poltergeist. Right. The year before that was Psycho, which I actually forgot. And then the the first year, the year before that was Halloween. Okay. So. Thanks. So, so crap, fifth. Five, fifth. Okay. <laughs> this has been that long. <laughs> all right. I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. However, Tom sprays gas all over the truck and sets it ablaze. Tom fights the truck. Oh, Tom no. fights the truck. <laughs> Tom fights the truck. It's these two unsuspecting people. Oh, hold on. There's a plane. <laughs> okay, the plane's gone. Ah, classic. Liver. I moved right into the flight path. Dang it. <laughs> All right. And I'm going to say this as well, that I had issues with the second act because it does bring my interest back up because I felt like the movie was like not really going. Gosh, that was awful. Sorry. <laughs> Let me start with that. <laughs> Just mumbling into the microphone over here. Don't, don't mind me. <laughs> Do you have any other complaints? That's pretty much it for me. Hello? Oh, you're frozen. I can hear you though, so that's okay. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Uh, connection lost. Piece of junk. Until Alan comes back, listeners, you get to enjoy listening to me sing. This is Halloween. Are you back? Hello? Are you there? You're back now. Yay. You're back. Okay. I filled in uh, with singing so the, inter- so the listeners wouldn't be bored. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right when, you, right when you were responding, you cut out. And I was like, oh, man. Great. Night of the Living Dead was not only a... Gosh, my chair squeaky. <laughs> okay. Restart. Um, you know, I wanted to check and see um, 
if this was ever on the IMDb top 250 with a 7.9. Oh, yeah. I That's a good question. I it very well may have been. I'm going to check. I don't know. I've got the master list pulled up. That's why I invented the master list. <laughs> you want to know what the lowest rated movie that's ever graced the IMDb top 250? Oh, what? Tom and Huck with a 5.5. Of course. Of course. <laughs> it, um, starring our beloved Elijah Wood, I believe. Ah, great. <laughs> so it was position 146, um, in 1996, which was, I think, the first year of the IMDb Top 250. So, okay. Anyways, no, I'm shocked with a 7.9. It's not there, but now we know. Anyways, 